Have you ever wanted to peek into the dark corners of history and see what you find? Luckily, you've come to the right place. I'm Teddy. I'm Katrina. And this is Grave History, a macabre history podcast. Good evening, friends. <gasps> We're mixing it up a bit tonight. Eee. I'm saying good evening. Mm. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah, this is me. You. You're not allowed to say anything for the whole episode. No. You just have to listen to me talking. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be good. I'll be quiet. <laughs> okay, perfect. Very good. So it's a beautiful, windy night. It's a dark and stormy night. It is a dark and stormy night. Okay, so that's the perfect time. Actually, this would be a better night for ghost stories, wouldn't it? Mm. But I don't have any ghost stories for you tonight, I'm afraid. <laughs> Tonight we are plunging into the depths of the obscene, <gasps> the shocking, and... The depraved. The depraved, yes, the outrageous. <laughs> Tonight we are talking about uh, British moral outrage Ooh. at uh, published materials. And uh, published materials, I'm including film and published mm, materials. That's published. Yeah, totally. So today what I want to discuss is horror and kind of censorship and also outrage in the UK... And we love a good bit of outrage in the UK. Oh, and there's a lot of it too. Um, really, a, a book I used a lot because I had mixed sources for this, including uh, various web pages. But a book I used a lot was uh, "Youth, Popular Culture, and Moral Panics" by John Stringhall, um, which is a great book. It only goes up to 1996, which is when it was written, though. Mm. Um, so there's nothing about. I, I'm not really going to be talking about video games. Yeah. Mostly because. I think that's such a big discussion. I would genuinely rather hold it back. Mm. Plus, it's it's still developing. I think. Yeah, and a lot of it's through a very a very American lens. Yeah, that as well. Um, I mean, yeah. So I'm I'm talk again. I'm talking very specifically UK stuff because there's there's tons of interesting moral panic stuff that happened in America that I'm not going to go into. Like, mm. I'm not going to talk about the comics code, which is really interesting. Um, it's nothing to do with well, it is something to do with horror. I'm going to talk about horror comics a little bit. Yeah. But uh, basically the regulations that were placed on just superhero comics in the 50s. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting stuff. So I recommend reading Popular Culture and Moral Panics if you find any of this interesting. All right. Yeah. So uh, when I say moral panic, what I mean is excessive press or public concern about quote-unquote deviant social or cultural phenomena, which often preys upon fears of otherness. Mm. So the fears might be directed about racial groups, yeah. lower class people, for example. So, you know, and it, and it likes to scapegoat as well. Mm. Find a sort of convenient little villain. And we're going to go from pretty much the beginning of modern industrialization, which is we're gonna start roughly around the 1830s. Okay. And we're going to finish in, in 2009, actually. Ooh. Yeah. We're getting excessively modern. Well, that was 11 years ago, so... Oh, don't say that to me. Sorry. I just turned 28. It's already too much. Oh, yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you. I'm 28. Good good age. Divisible by a lot of numbers. Mm. Um, Nearly 30. Yeah. 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 God. Uh How age comes for us all. (laughs) (laughs) So, murder and violence as entertainment has kind of ended up being my 
academic specialty. Mm. But I'm going to talk about sort of pop culture like horror type stories. Not Ripper Time. No, it's not Ripper Time. Uh... I think that you, 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 you could work the Ripper into it probably, yeah. but um, I'm not going to be talking about the Ripper today. Uh, I'm going to leave him out, put him in his little, put him in Monopoly jail for today. He can come out to play later. <laughs> so I'd like to start with a quote by a man named J.G. Hubbard, who was later Lord Addington, Conservative MP. Excellent name. Yeah, I know, right? Everyone in this, like, there are a lot of Victorian names I just couldn't include just for time, <laughs> um, and they're all great. Ugh. He spoke in Parliament of the lamentable amount of juvenile criminality largely attributable to the spread of cheap publications and theatrical representations of an exciting and immoral character which corrupt the children of the lower class and stimulate them into courses of dishonesty and vice. Ugh. Yeah, that's kind of the key through everything we're going to talk about today from the 1830s to 2009-ish. Mm. That kind of fear. But where it really begins in horror terms is with Penny Dreadfuls or Penny Bloods as they were first known. Oh, I didn't know they were called that first. Yeah, it's very... No, there's a great art, There's a great series of articles about kind of Victorian publications at the British Library mm. which I recommend you checking out. I still need to go to the British Library to read um, The Sins of the Cities of the Plains. Yes. Which I haven't done yet, dear listeners. I'm ever so sorry. <laughs> they've got... They've got they're, a, they're a great resource, the British Library. Look on their mm. website. They've got tons of fantastic stuff. I want to read late Victorian gay smart and I don't know why I haven't yet. Why haven't? You? Because it's it's such a long way for me to go. To to read Gay Smart when you could just open AO3 on your phone right now. Exactly. Exactly. I could open my phone and read Storm Pilot right now. Storm Pilot. Interesting. Mm. Um <laughs> Don't judge Actually me. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna I'm not judging you at all. I, I that, that's that's a very good one actually. It is. Actually I'm gonna talk about fan fiction a little bit later. Yay! Okay. So Penny Bloods. And also, I'm going to say um, the first kind of stirrings of This is Corrupting the Youth were to do with um, what is known as Penny Theatre. Mm. Yes, which is kind of lower class. Penny Gaffs, they were also called. Productions, which were quite, okay. you know, vaudeville and bawdy. And there was a lot of moral concern about youth going to see these. But a lot of that concern didn't revolve around violence per se, more about, you know, they just in bad taste they're lower they're lower class they're yeah. sexually immoral that kind of thing you know what I mean yeah I was gonna say I'm already sensing that this is gonna just be really the things that lower class people enjoy yeah it very much that <laughs> keep that theme in mind a lot mm-hmm I think that's the main theme, I think. Um, I'm also talking about... We're mainly talking about worrying about corrupting the children. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, Helen Lovejoy style. That's <laughs> where all this concern revolves around, is the children, pretty much, which is a very amorphous description of a group of people. Yeah. But yeah, they largely mean lower-class children who would be propelled into committing crime because they read or, you know, were influenced by reports of crime. Yeah. So, going back to the Penny Dreadfuls... Now, they weren't really anything new even then. Um, the origins of them probably lie in crime broadsides, mm-hmm. which were basically a big old bit of printed paper which was sold at public executions in the 18th and 19th century. It usually came illustrated with a picture of the crime or the criminal or just a woodcut of a generic hanging. And it would recount the crime, the trial, uh, the criminal's confession, and perhaps a doggerel, which is an irregular burlesque comic poem, okay. um, warning you not to commit the same crime. Huh. <laughs> Yeah. Was that working? Well, I mean, crime was happening, so I'm going to say new. (laughs) Amazing. Although, as I pointed out, most people don't commit violent crime. Yeah. A very large percentage of the human population do not commit (laughs) violent crime. So, also, maybe, yeah. 
but yeah, industrialization kicked off, um, and by the 1830s, society had already been very noticeably changed by it. Noticeable change here is reading as a leisure activity. Mm. So they began in the 1830s, and this era saw a boom in cheap fiction due to more people could read, yeah. and mass production was done. So typically, they would be sold um, at a penny an issue, hence the name Penny Dreadful. Mm-hmm. We can see some interesting things here already, like the social change that cheap printing bought, and also also, the public's apparently excessive appetite for gore. Just love it, as humans. I mean, that's still a huge point of debate, is why do we love this stuff? And it's nothing new. People have always been interested in, like, since before mass literacy was a thing, people yeah. loved hearing about tales of crime and gore. Yeah. Now, I'm extrapolating from a book that I read for my dissertation by Pamela Pilbeam about uh, Madame Tussaud, in which she suggests that the reason that wax museums became popular, like the Chamber of Horrors at wax mm. museums, is because there was a decline in public executions. Yeah. And people want to see blood, goddammit. <laughs> Uh, real or not so i think maybe i think maybe the same thing would play into the popularity of the penny dreadful like yeah yeah that makes sense the first ever penny blood was 1836's lives of the most notorious highwaymen footpads and then it's an ampersand in a c and i'm not 100 percent sure what that means but that's what it's called Uh. um this came in 60 parts and documented the lives and careers of britain's most famous criminals past and present (gasps) The British Library amusingly describes it as compiled with a fine eye for scandal and a somewhat less scrupulous approach to factual accuracy. I was going to say, is my is my homeboy um, Dick Turpin in there, do you think? Yes, he is! Yay! I was just about to say that. He was really popular. Yeah. People loved Highway. Highwaymen were kind of one of the first most popular genres. Dick Turpin, Gentleman Jack was another one. Not the new Gentleman Jack, unfortunately. Oh. I know, right. But other famous figures kind of began to pop up a bit later when horror fiction became more popular. One of them was Varney the Vampire, which was a serial that ran from 1845 to 1847. Uh I agree, it's objectively... I think you can still read bits of it online, if not all of it, because it is quite well known as um, being a big influencer in vampire fiction. Yeah. Like, it's believed it's the first thing to feature sharpened teeth. Oh! Yeah, hypnotism kind of coming through the window at Sleeping Maidens. Uh, So, you know, quite a few vampire tropes. Mm -hmm. And some have suggested it was influential on on Dracula, which is, you know, also very possible. Mm. But yeah, between this kind of era, 1830 and 1850, there were about 100 different penny fiction publishers. Oh, wow. Some of the other famous tales included 1846 to 47's The String of Pearls, A Domestic Romance, which sounds Mills and Boone, but actually introduced the world to Sweeney Todd. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds very sort of, oh, she's going to get a pearl necklace kind of a romance. Wink. I think that... Wait, are you using pearl necklace in the euphemistic yes, term? Yes, I am. apparently... I was going to say, because <laughs> I, was, I was told recently that that is a euphemism, and I was very upset. <laughs> I am absolutely using it in the euphemistic sense. Yes. I, I don't I don't think I I haven't read uh, The String of Pearls a domestic romance, but um I don't think that comes up in it. <laughs> Not depraved enough. No, oh. I mean that uh, that definitely would have been bad. <laughs> but yeah, so Sweeney Todd was a, was a fictional character, unlike Dick Turpin, mm. who which was based on a real person. But um, a lot of people think Sweeney Todd was a real person, and that's always interesting. That is to always interesting. Observe. Yeah. And we also had other ones like The Mysteries of London, which was by George W.M. Reynolds and later by two other authors, which was the most successful of these stories ever. So what what these were were city mysteries that were a bit closer to the reader's own lives. Ooh, you know, slums, yeah, yeah. the criminal underworld, the careless rich. Dickens mm. on a dime, if you will. 
Mm-hmm. Mysteries of London was, some still claim, the longest novel ever written at 4.5 million words. Jesus Christ. It's probably the most successful serial publication in history. Mm. And as scholar James Lewis writes, probably the most widely read piece of fiction in 19th century Britain. And yet it's been largely forgotten, which yeah. is interesting. Well, it's something poor people like, isn't it? Ew. Ew. But yeah, you you can read it at um, a site called victorianlondon.org, which is run by historian Lee Jackson. It's a pretty good resource for like Victorian history in general, if okay. you're interested in the period. I always am. Yeah, stick it on. Pour yourself a chipped glass of room temperature gin and kick back with some ASMR soundscapes. I found some Victorian London like soundscapes on... Um, YouTube, and I've been oh. listening to them a lot, and it's delightful. Amazing. Really getting myself into that place. <laughs> um, but yeah, Spring Hill Jack also appeared. Yay! In the Penny Dreadfuls, our boy. Um, although that was based on supposedly true accounts as well, as opposed mm. to just being something that the Penny Dreadfuls made up. Now, a key feature of the Penny Blood, which would become n- known as the Penny Dreadful a bit later on, kind of the 1850s, 60s, was the illustration at the beginning of each issue. You can see a lot of these on the British Library's website again, and they're great. Please look them up. I will. They're very eye-catching. Reportedly, one publisher's standing instruction to his illustrators was, more blood, much more blood. <laughs> it's just me at every LARP I go to. Blood! Blood, blood, we blood, <laughs> blood, blood. Exactly. <laughs> now, unfortunately, we live in a in an unjust world, and penny dreadfuls were kind of on the decline by the end of the nineteenth century. Mm. There was a big shift in the 1860s towards targeting children as the primary audience, uh, specifically boys. Yeah. It was a pretty male-dominated audience they were aiming for. Mm-hmm. Many of the characters were children, e.g. Ernest Keane, the boy detective. And uh, yeah, later Penny Dreadfuls, uh, for example, Jack Harkaway's School Days from 1880. Mm. Look that up because it's got a very lurid, sort of bright comic style cover okay. um, which is definitely trying to appeal to kids uh, and was sort of less bloody yeah and it's it's worth pointing out that several like pretty well-known authors began writing in penny dreadfuls oh yeah and i wouldn't call it a stretch to associate the rise of fiction like you know wilkie collins uh especially the woman in white mm-hmm. which have like a similar melodrama but more middle-class sensibilities yeah with with the with the penny dreadful uh, same with sherlock holmes actually yeah i can see that yeah that's because that, that was you know quite episodic yeah and dickens wrote episodically of course he did yeah because didn't he get paid by the the publication? I don't know if that's... Yeah, he, he got paid um, to write instalments of his novels. So yeah. um, you can re- you can really tell it with some of his books because they are very episodic rather than... Yeah. Like a, a, which I don't mind. I personally like episodic storytelling. So uh, there was a lot of Dickens knockoffs. Mm-hmm. So we, including uh, Oliver Twist. Oh my God. Nicholas Nickleberry. <laughs> and my personal favourite, Martin Guzzlewit. Oh my god. <laughs> it's like the I know, kind of right? brands you find in like a Hong Kong market. <laughs> Martin Guzzlewit. I'm I'm because a lot of um these have been lost to the, the, the sands of time because yeah. they were just so cheaply made that they just didn't survive. I, yeah, some of the more famous ones have been preserved, but mm. yeah, lots of them have gone. But God I want to read Martin Guzzlewit. Yeah. I want to know what happens. How closely to the plot does he stick? I've never actually read Martin Chuzzlewit, so no, he no, could tell not. me anything, and I'd be like, yeah, pretty... <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Wonderful. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so we're focusing more on, on kids, and they kind of slowly morphed into weekly comics, which continued... At, well, I mean, today. Yeah. Um, 
even like the, the well is the beano still weekly it definitely used to be um i don't know because mm. i mean i i actually know a lot about um the british children's comic industry because i collect old gold comics um, but i'm not going to talk about that now because oh. you know what that's pleasant and yeah. we're here to be we're here to be gory and depraved nasty. depraved yes but their other chief competitor for a child audience were halfpenny stories mm. so one publishing magnate called alfred harmsworth produced the halfpenny marvel uh-huh. which was full of high-minded moral tales oh who has the time for that well exactly as well as uh, penny books which were published by someone named george news and were nicknamed penny delightfuls <laughs> Also, Penny popular novels launched in 1896 by none other than our boy W.T. Stead. Yay! Yay! Who you know was all about moralising. Oh, yeah. So they tended to be just as fictional, but a lot less gory, obviously. Mm. And A.A. Milne, uh, author of Winnie the Pooh, once said of Alfred Harmsworth that he killed the Penny Dreadful by the simple process of producing the Haypenny Dreadfuller. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Burn. Great turn-of-the-century burn, I suppose. <laughs> but Harmsworth was very much on a moral crusade. Mm-hmm. Uh, he want, he was motivated by a wish to challenge the pernicious influence of Penny Dreadfuls. Mm. And in 1893, in the first edition of the Halfpenny Marvel, he wrote, It is almost a daily occurrence with magistrates to have before them boys who, having read a number of Dreadfuls, follow the examples set forth in such publications robbed their employers, bought revolvers with the proceeds, and finished by running away from home and installing themselves in the back streets as highwaymen. This and many other evils the Penny Dreadful is responsible for. It makes thieves of the coming generation and so helps fill our jails. That's from Springhold's book. I love some good Victorian outrage. <laughs> I, you can feel the moustaches. I can, and the mock yeah, chops. Just bristling with shock oh. and anger and rage. <laughs> now, if you've lived in a society at all, yes. you will have already heard this argument in some form or another. Mm. X is making the kids violent. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so there's a logical fallacy in philosophy, and I'm vaguely recalling my higher philosophy from when I was 16 here, so... But it's called post hoc ergo propter hoc, which literally means after this, therefore because of this. It's assuming that because an event occurred before another, it was the cause of said event. Yeah. So the example we were always given in class was the fact that the Columbine shooting happened because the perpetrators, they listened to Marilyn Manson and they played Doom. Yeah. Yeah. So um, not a new argument. No, God, no. And again, uh, well, we can talk about this a little bit at the end, but yeah, not to completely deny influence from pop culture on behaviour, but it's a it's a tenuous link, mm. often. That's kind of the theme today. <laughs> Love a good tenuous link. Yeah, totally. And it, it's going to get more tenuous, believe me. Yay! There was a lot of anxiety about youth crime, as there always is, mm-hmm. but especially in the late Victorian period, and child criminals absolutely existed, Petty thieves like Fagin's pickpockets were around in the first half of the century, and they would um, they they would uh, actually steal wallets and silk handkerchiefs, which had a very high resale value. Mm. Oh, is there this term um, cut purse? Is that from that era or is that earlier? I think that I think that's an earlier term. Mm. Like, because I think that's when I'm basing my knowledge of history here mostly on the medieval segment of Lego races. (laughs) But didn't people used to carry like coins around in like little leather purses? Yeah, they did, and hang them on their belts. Yeah, yeah, I know that from (laughs) what. 
Oh, okay, yeah, okay, so you you know a lot more about this, because my knowledge of history begins in about, I'm going to say, 1790, and everything before that is just one long blur. That's why we make such a good team. Totally. <laughs> but, yeah, so I, I don't think they'd be doing that, plus pa- I think paper money was becoming more common as well. Oh, yeah, the enormous pound notes. I know, like, I was watching Dad's Army recently, and they had some money, and it's like getting out, like, sheets of A4 paper, <laughs> and it's like, whoa there. Uh, it's that thing with, like, the owl and the pussycat. I could never understand how they wrapped up how- that much in a note. Because in the olden days, a banknote had to be, you know, it had to be taller than your oldest child. Yeah. And that was law. <laughs> so, um, between 1830 and 1860, over half of those tried at the Old Bailey for pickpocketing were under 20. <laughs> as well as, you know, heavier theft, uh, mudlarks, which is a great word, were boys oh. and girls aged 8 to 15 who plundered Thames barges for goods. Yay! <laughs> which is now very fashionable and all the hipsters do it, including me. You plundered a Thames barge for no, goods? No, I plundered the Thames banks. Ah, okay, 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 okay. For okay. bones and clay pipes and other such e- ephemera. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. a there's a, a lot washing up there. People oh, yeah. have historically just thrown a lot of nonsense into the Thames. Mm-hmm. And they still do. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, London. Never change. Oh. Or maybe do change a little bit. I'd love to do, like, a deep dive about Victorian uh, youth crime it- uh, because it's really interesting, um, it, but it, we're not it. going to. No, 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 no. We're not oh. going to right now. We're not going to right now. <laughs> when we talk about penny dreadfuls, we know the number one concern: uh, violent content leads consumers to commit acts of violence themselves. Mm, of course. Yes. In the case of particularly horrible crimes, it's easy to understand the concerns. I will also say there was something of an overemphasis on child criminality as well, by both by moral reformers and by the fact that. Um, Data gathering was a lot more sophisticated, so people had more statistics than ever about, you know, crime. Mm. And therefore, that may have led them to assume, oh, there's just loads more of it now, which was probably not the case. Yeah. In fact, that there may have been less of it. Like, how people nowadays are like, the world today is so violent, and it's like, well, I, it seems that way, but statistically, I think we're doing, in in Britain, you're probably the one of the best times to be alive. Mm. It's probably, you're probably at your least likely to die a violent death by, you know, war or die of, like... Disease. A, a, pre- a preventable disease. Yeah. Um, you know, that kind of thing. Like, it's safer to be alive now than it was in the 1500s. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely it is. Yeah. Or even during the Second World War. Mm. But there were outside factors there. <laughs> yeah, totally. But yeah, so in uh, the case of Penny Dreadfuls, one case in particular stands out, and there's a whole book written about it by Kate Summerscale. Mm. She wrote The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, which is a great sort of true crime book, mm-hmm. and I recommend picking it up. I find it, I see it in a lot of charity shops for some reason, uh, so pick it up if you find it, it's a good yeah. read. Uh, her book's called The Wicked Boy, and I'm only talking about part of it here, but in uh, it concerns a murder. In July of 1895, a woman named Emily Combs was her discovered dead and decomposing in her house in Plaistow, East London. Mm-hmm. After some sort of faffing about her, two sons, uh, Robert and Natty, who were 13 and 12, were charged with the murder, which was stabbing her to death. And I'm not deep diving into it here because there's a lot to talk about and you should read the book. The most important factor is that at their house, um, one of the items seized and submitted with the evidence was a collection of penny dreadfuls. 
And these were submitted alongside a revolver, a knife, and a blood-spattered gown, which were, you know, definitely relevant to the case. Yeah. Um, and you can read the, the full court record of their trial at the Old Bailey Online Archive.org, and it's pretty interesting. But uh, the coroner's jury made mention of uh, the Penny Dreadfuls and its verdict. We consider that legislature, I have a real difficulty with words that end in cheer, <laughs> should take some steps to put a stop to the inflammable and shocking literature that is sold, which in our opinion leads to many a dreadful crime being carried out. Oh, so it was a thing of like, because we found this at the crime scene, we're making the kind of quote-unquote logical conclusion that this is re- yeah. related. Yeah. yeah, the younger child, Natty, was, I believe he was let off. Mm. But uh, the older one was sentenced to 17 years in Broadmoor. Ah, Broadmoor. Broadmoor again, yeah. Where he would become the youngest patient. Ah. Now, their case wasn't unique. Mm. So a 15-year-old named Thomas Richard Nash killed himself in 1895 by drinking carbolic acid. Ooh. And in his box of belongings were Penny Dreadfuls. Ah, okay. A boy named George Sharp was, in 1904 reprimanded for threatening to kill his stepfather uh-huh. uh, and what do you think he was carrying on him at the time um the beano yes it was the beano <laughs> the beano is shockingly violent and i was ranting about this to someone the other day who, who wasn't listening like do you, re- do you remember in the beano right D- uh, dennis the menace was always like he'd just be like i'm gonna go and pick on my neighbor walter and walter was doing like walter was just minding his own goddamn business and then this bully comes into Walter's garden and starts bullying him. Yeah! How come there was never an, an outrage about the Beano encouraging bullying? Maybe there was, and we were just too young to notice. I don't think so. I don't think there ever has. I mean, I don't know why really? the Beano's still going. I don't I don't know what it's, uh, you know, publishing now, but yeah. um, I, I remember as a kid thinking, he's kind of bullying this guy. And and Walter was always, he was Walter the softy, so he was, he was always doing stuff like wearing a bow tie and having tea parties. And it's like, so that's some pretty clear homophobia we've got uh, hidden away yeah. in the pages of the Beano. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I got, and like I say, yeah, that, that, okay. um, at, that po- at that point, the, the barista was like, uh, can I take your order, ma'am? This is a costa. <laughs> no, I just... <laughs> no, listen to my theories about the Beano, damn it. <laughs> You're not getting to leave. I've locked the doors on the outside. (laughs) Now, in 1892, two teenage boys from Blackburn robbed a local farmer, and the Grantham Mm -hmm. Journal described them as part of a gang led by sensational literature. There's more. In 1889, two West Ham schoolboys absconded with a pistol, a dagger, and a terrier dog. (laughs) When they were caught and returned home, what did their parents blame? (gasps) Penny Trifles. You're very good. You're getting good at this. I am, I am, I am. In 1892, in Brighton, a 12-year-old boy hanged himself. The jury delivered a verdict of suicide during temporary insanity induced by reading trashy novels. (laughs) Yes. Which I hope is exactly what my coroner's report says when I die. Yeah. (laughs) Except mine will probably be more like... No, that mine's going to be um, temporary insanity induced by watching too many Hallmark Christmas movies. Not even at Christmas. Yeah. It's truly like the most depraved thing about me, personally. There are a lot more cases. Uh, too many more, actually, but I think you get the point. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a good article about this in The Guardian uh, just called Cheap and Nasty. 
Yeah, I know, it's great. Now, the papers really enjoyed this angle. Now, when two 18-year-olds were charged with a murder in Tunbridge Wells in 1888, the Daily News said that the natural depravity of the murderers had found a strong stimulus in the penny dreadfuls found in their possession. Mmm, love that classism. Yeah, totally. I mean, plus, it's a neat story, and it's a really good way at finding a culprit mm. for so-called unnatural acts of violence. yeah. You know, I, we've discussed reformers in Victorian society before as well, you know, sexual purity, mm-hmm. mostly. But there was also a pure literature society, which sounds like fun. Doesn't surprise mm. me. It sounds intensely dull. Yeah, it sounds like the most, like, they just you just go in and the air smells like a car sales room, and mm-hmm. when they talk, the air turns beige. <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's frustratingly little available about them online, but, you know, their mission was basically that corrupt literature led to a corrupt youth, and therefore literature needed to be cleaned up. Okay. Yeah, and cheap fiction's a great target, because it's felt that wider literacy had led to the corruption of literature as an art form. Can't let the poor people read! Poor people ruin everything, apparently. Yeah. Uh, as, Spring- as Springhall puts it, reading among the street youth kind of became like a crime in and of itself. Yeah, how dare you read? Youths reading on street corners Ugh. and gangs. Can't have poor people reading, because then they'll get ideas. I mean, basically, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of reading being like the cause of violence is like... Reading itself being a depraved act is yeah. pretty funny. It's very funny. I'm going to go and read on every street corner. Just standing, <laughs> just standing there, like you know, dressed in like a 1970s punk outfit. Yeah. Just how do you how does how does one read threateningly? Just glare at people over the top of your book. Really be gripping the book hard. <laughs> I'm reading in a threatening manner. Yes. <laughs> but I would like, if I may. To go forward in time a little bit at this juncture. Time travel time. Yes, we're still in Britain, of course, but now it's the 50s. Ooh, okay. Yes, new queen. Good. Rationing is over. I think that was, what, 51 rationing ended? I think so. It depends on the area. Some areas it continued for longer. Yeah. I don't have any other stereotypes of the 1950s. Television was starting to be introduced. Are, Are you remembering that one episode of Doctor Who as well? Yes. Yeah, okay, so yeah, okay. Very much so. (laughs) Yeah, so television's becoming a thing, and, you know, people would express concerns about TV, but we'll get onto that in a a minute. But first of all, we're Mm -hmm. going to look at uh, Moral Panic number two, and this is just kind of a smaller, this is like a little mini panic. Um... So in America, there were, as I mentioned, there were wars against the comic books, which resulted in a comics code. Yep. Um, now, one of the comics very heavily affected was EC Comics series Tales from the Crypt, which you may have heard of. Oh, of course I have. I'm of a god. Of Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've never actually read the comics, although you can buy them now. Yeah. Like you can buy books of them, but I have seen the TV series, obviously. Yeah. And it's Naturally. great. It's just yeah, it's just goosebumps for grown-ups. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I prefer it over, like, a Black Mirror or something. Yeah. <laughs> Black Mirror is good, but, like, Tales from the Crypt is more fun. <laughs> and uh, I recommend Googling c- covers from Tales from the Crypt to put you in the right frame of mind here. You know, that title font, screaming maidens, ghouls, werewolves. It's great. It's wonderful. I love it. Oh, yeah. Camp. I think is a good way. Camp horror. Mm. Now, unfortunately, the comic 
publishers folded following a panic about juvenile delinquency in the States, which came to a head in 1954 with the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency. Violent crimes were not blamed, but were implicated in what psychiatrist Frederick Wortham uh, deemed the seduction of the innocent, which is also a book that he wrote, which is uh, misguided, shall we say. That's my band name. Seduction of the Innocent. Yeah. That's probably a band called Seduction of the Innocent. Oh, that absolutely is. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's worth a read, if only to critique it. Mm. But this was not a uh, uniquely American incident. Tales from the Crypt was very popular in the UK. In 1955, unfortunately, it caught the attention of top civil servant A.W. Peterson, who had been tasked... Oh, fuck's sake. I know. He'd been tasked with providing top politicos with the content possible dangers of this comic. Um, in the States, a lot of it was also to do with McCarthyism. Oh, yeah. Yes. So I think they were also afraid of possible corrupting communist influences. Mm-hmm. So I, I believe this was less of a case, but still a concern in the UK. Yeah. This rode in on growing anxieties around comics, which took advantage of some anti-American sentiment in a bid to return to a more British way of life. You can't see, but I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> I can hear them, don't worry. <laughs> oh, good, I'm glad. Actually, it's a very interesting mix of people united in concern over comics for the preservation of the moral health of Britain. And mm. Some of these people included the Communist Party, who allied with the Comics Campaign Council, Triple C, okay. the Established Church, and the National Union of Teachers, who are referred to as NUT in uh, the book. Nut. Oh, nuts. Uh, they actually later distanced themselves from the campaign because of the communist leanings and organ- organised their own. <laughs> I know, right? Bit too commie. Can't be too commie. Well, no. America's relationship with communism is extremely strange. It is. The UK, well, I guess so as well, but... I don't think we're quite as fanatically capitalist. We're not quite, we're not quite as afraid of socialism. Well, I'm, I'm saying we... I'm talking kind of about Scotland here. I don't want to say anything too controversial. (laughs) But yes, uh, Nut, once they had distanced themselves uh, from the campaign, organised their own exhibition of horror comic illustrations in the Palace of Westminster, which then toured the country, whipping up calls to action about these violent, often taken out of context, I will say, Mm. panels. Apparently, like, um, the Eisenhower administration was actually concerned about ill-feeling between Britain and America as a result of this moral panic, which was all (laughs) the while whipped up by the press. You know, this kind of feeling like, ah, your American comics are destroying our British youth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, apparently it was enough to be, like, a genuine concern. I can believe it. Yeah, totally. Now, in operation at this time was the 1857 Obscene Publications Act, which I'm assuming you are at least somewhat familiar with. Yes. Yes, good. I haven't really brought this up before, and that's because the act was introduced in concern over the London pornography trade. And I'm talking pretty much about violence so far, although, you know, pornography does come into it, and the two overlap pretty heavily, Mm. especially in the sort of next tale, I will tell. Yeah. But... This act basically makes the display and sale of obscene publications uh, a statutory offence rather than a common law misdemeanour. Ooh. Yeah, I know, right? And as for what constituted obscenity, it's difficult to say, although police were empowered to raid premises and post office authorities to seize shipments of obscene publications. What were they doing with them? 
I don't know. I'm presumably I'm presuming they took them to like a room in the police station that just said filth room on the door and then solemnly <laughs> depositing them in there like you know the warehouse at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh yeah. Yeah, okay, that's probably where they were all going. <laughs> where they have remained to this day, just this very restrained Victorian pornography. Actually a lot of Victorian pornography is pretty filthy. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, so the the act was criticized pretty widely like during its entire run. Frequently for restricting artistic expression, obviously, which is something people have always been concerned about. Taking excerpts out of context, as well as prosecuting booksellers rather than creators. Mm. The 1868 landmark case in this was Regina v. Hicklin, Mm -hmm. which established the definition of obscenity as material that was tending to deprave and corrupt those whose minds are open to such immoral influences. Uh, This is called the Hicklin test. Okay. It's also whatever a father cannot read aloud in his own home. <laughs> I don't... I feel like that that could cover too many things. Yeah. Like, I feel like if my dad tried to, like, I don't know, read from one of his bicycle magazines out loud in his home, the it would receive a pretty uh, lukewarm reception. Yeah. In my home. But yeah, that was kind of the weird rule of thumb they applied. That is weird. Yeah. This act stayed around, not entirely unchallenged, but until the 50s, when an amendment of the act was made to explicitly condemn brutality, horror, and violence, which would solve the problem of the horror comics. Yeah. It was regarded quite warily, as again, that's still quite ambiguous. Now, a bill was drafted and went through several iterations. Initially, in 1955, it was aimed to prosecute any book, magazine, or like work which consists of stories told in pictures in such a way that the work as a whole would tend to incite or encourage to A, the commission of crimes, or B, acts of violence and cruelty, or C, otherwise to corrupt a child or young person into whose hands it might fall. I mean, you know what? I've read superhero comics and immediately wanted to wear spandex, and I think that's pretty... And that's the real horror here, isn't it? Yeah, that's leading (laughs) me astray. You do me well. I'm I'm literally wearing spandex right now. Are you? Yeah, I was doing yoga this evening. Oh, fair. Yeah. Actually, I've just realised, so am I. (laughs) (laughs) You see, they were right. They are. It's happened. Yeah, and I don't even read superhero comics, so this is by osmosis, strictly just being, like, (laughs) cultural osmosis, if you will. But yeah, this was later amended to include incidents of a repulsive or horrible nature. We then get an avalanche of papers on the practicalities on this, many arguing it's too hard to prove. Yeah. One person suggested the real evil in these comics is because it encourages a wrong attitude towards society generally, glorifying the criminal and ridiculing law enforcement. And another argument was that horror comics undermine society by depicting flawed family and societal units, you know, ordinary people as monstrous in their violent and selfish acts, which... Is an interesting argument. Yeah. Should we, like, be completely uncritical of society and depict all people as good? Is, like, the logical (sighs) counter-argument to that. That's, like, a kind of dystopia. Well, yeah, I mean... I don't like it. It almost loops back round to the Penny Delightfuls again, like these, these maudlin tales of goodness that are designed to specifically written to set people straight Mm -hmm. Um, because you know moralizing fiction is rarely 
fondly regarded. Yeah. You know? But yeah, debates were held and ultimately a bill, the Children and Young Persons Harmful Publications Act, was passed. And it's still on the books today. You can read it updated on legislation.gov.org. I will. It didn't really make much of an impact with a total of one prosecution in uh, 1970. (laughs) So... Yeah, that's basically the tale of the comics. What we have here is a little mini moral panic that ended up not really meaning a lot, actually, not really introducing anything and ultimately being sort of quite forgotten, almost, the British panic over. Well, probably not by the people who owned and sold Tales from the Crypt, who Mm. I imagine suffered quite badly financially. But yeah, stuff that would mean a whole lot more was yet to come. Now there, I'm going to leave a little break because I... Need to uh, refill a top up of your lukewarm gin. Of my lukewarm gin, yes. Oh no, actually, we're coming out of the Victorian era now, so I need to pick an, a more. Hmm, we're we're heading towards the eighties, so I need an eighties beverage. Give me an eighties beverage. Um, cocaine. <laughs> okay, just a glass of cocaine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, let's okay. go. I'm gonna go and get one of those. Oh right. Okay, <laughs> we'll see you in a minute. See you in a minute. It's an awful mess and a bad case of cannibalism. Quote by Master Corporal Bob Bisson. If you want to hear more bad cases of cannibalism and indeed awful messes, make sure to listen to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. Hello, potion seller. <laughs> I... <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that's so... staying in there. No. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stop thinking about it now. Now that it's been brought up. Um, yeah. So, I should say, on a somewhat serious note from this point onwards, I'm going to talk about some real recent murders um, okay. and also sort of violence and maybe a bit more detail. Uh, so, okay. kind of a, a, a warning for that, I suppose. Um, not really anything we haven't discussed before yeah but yeah just so you're aware this will have some violent content that is from the real world and not just from the the ghoulish multicolored delights of the penny dreadful i did actually look at the at some of the covers and the tales of the crypt covers they're great aren't and they? i love them they're amazing i really want to know if i can get prints of them because i would love some prints of them Oh, that would be so good. Mm-hmm. But as I'm sure you're aware, by the 80s, the entertainment landscape was changing again. Uh, 80s Britain, uh, I don't have any stereotypes. Uh, oh, no, no, minor strike. Uh, that happened. Minor strike, yep. Shoulder pads, blush all the way to the, the hairline. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Big hair. Big hair. But, um, yeah, by the 80s, uh, video recordings had established themselves. Uh, I think it was about 78, actually, when, like, um, commercial video recorders for home use sort of became quite popular. The home movie. Yeah, well, just just video releases in general. So, like, for the first time... For the first time, you could go see a film, mm. and then, like, if you wanted to see that film again, you wouldn't be like, I've got to wait for that to be on TV, or, you know, even before that, like, uh, I wonder if they'll show that again at my local cinema. Yeah. Which is kind of nuts to think about nowadays, that, like... Yeah. <laughs> you've, That's it, so strange. You get one go at this film. You uh. better remember it. Um, <laughs> but actually, it's interesting how that might affect sort of memory around film, I think, like, mm. the fact that people might remember it differently. Yeah. Which is less of a risk nowadays, of course. But yeah, so for the first time ever, people could 
watch films when they wanted, what they wanted. Now, at this time, uh, late 70s, early 80s, the only legislation was the Obscene Publications Act 1959 edition. Okay. Now, this was an amendment of the 1857 Act uh, that tried to keep up with the times. So, yeah, the Hicklin test, as I mentioned before, isn't very good. Yeah. Especially because it doesn't really take into account the intentions of the defendant. Mm. Like, what were they trying to do when they made this work? Because, I mean, if someone created a bit of work that was intended to corrupt, then I think that would be a lot easier to prosecute but what if yeah what if they didn't intend to corrupt or again what if the audience wasn't children and the argument mm. was the argument was like ah but kids could find it and it's like well that's not that's not my problem as an author you know yeah <laughs> wasn't the exorcist banned under something like that i don't think it was banned there is an interesting article about this on the bbfc that i recommend reading but the exorcist was very controversial at the very least um because mm. It was one of the scariest things people had ever seen at the time. I mean, it, it's a great film. It holds up really well. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, there were a few films that weren't banned, but were massively... Con- like, um, you know, the deal with A Clockwork Orange wasn't banned. Yeah, it wasn't banned in the UK, oh, but it yeah. was withdrawn by Kubrick himself. Mm, it is a terrible film. I'm going to be on record there. It's not a good film. Uh, I like Kubrick. I- but I think I think my favorite Kubrick is still two thousand one Space Odyssey. Yeah, yeah, it has its. I like Malcolm McDowell as well. Saying anything new? Well, definitely not nowadays. <laughs> no, it's like, hey, guess what? Young men are violent. I don't know. Maybe that was a huge revelation to other men at the time. <laughs> really? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise! <laughs> Yeah, the act, uh, this new act was uh, decided, it decided it would take the whole work into account, not just out of context, you know, scenes, which could happen. Mm-hmm. And would also, you know, that also means like the overall morality of the work. So you, you couldn't just be like, yeah. you know, you couldn't be like, so in this film, Schindler's List, it shows a Jew being shot. This film hates Jews. And it's like, uh, well, if you take the whole <laughs> film into account, you could argue the opposite, yeah. in fact. You know, basically, stuff like that. And it broadened corruptibility to include intention to corrupt. And it had to be corrupting to multiple persons, not just a single case. Yeah. Among other caveats, the the defendant can also make a case for the work being important to the public good. Uh, There were some very famous prosecutions under this act. Probably most famously was Lady Chatterley's Lover. Oh, yes. Yes. It was Penguin Books was prosecuted. And the book was banned until the end of the trial when it was decided, yeah, okay, this is fine. Another one, another very famous uh, trial under this act was in 1971, the School Kids Oz trial, Mm. when an issue of Oz, which it was an indie alternative counterculture magazine from the late 60s, early 70s. It was edited by 20 teenagers, like, as guest editors for its 28th issue. I mean, it was quite a provocative magazine and some of the stuff it included uh, included sort of discussions about sexual stuff, violent stuff. Okay, so therein followed the longest legal trial in English history (laughs) at the time, focusing on the contents of the magazine, which included various things. My favourite of which is... um, a cartoon of Rupert the Bear in an explicit situation. <laughs> yeah, that that was really something that was discussed in court. Oh and I God. didn't look up the court record, but I hope it is also available because I'm oh. sure it is dryly entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, the defendants, uh, the magazine editors, that is, were found guilty and sentenced to 15 months in prison. Jesus. Yeah, in um, a retrospective for The Guardian in, in 2001, so already about 20 years ago, one of the former kids who did the editing described the trial as a cultural war disguised as an obscenity trial. So he was like, uh, he basically made the point, well, ord- ordinary, quote marks, uh, porn that reinforces social order doesn't receive this kind of attention. Ooh... Yeah, which is uh. a point. Uh, but I, again, I'm sliding into pornography rather than violence. Yeah, you know. But I, I, from the, from this point forward, the two become quite intertwined. I would say. Yeah, don't they always? Yeah, I'm afraid that's the case. Yes. Um, yeah, a lot of stuff about censorship is mostly about you know concerns about pornography and sexually explicit stuff as opposed to violence, mm. which is kind of a shame because I, I I enjoy the discussion around violence myself. But <laughs> you know. <laughs> Now, one thing the Obscene Publications Act remained ambiguous on was violence. Mm. It was amended in 1977 to cover erotic films, which were now freely available, you know, on the video market. Oh, yeah. But the market was also flooded with low-budget horror. Mm. (laughs) Now, the panic around this first sort of sprang up in 1982, when a 1979 black comedy horror called The Driller Killer... Oh, yes. Yes, we were talking about this earlier, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was uh, advertised in video magazines with quite an ex- uh, a violently explicit poster uh, of a man being drilled through the head, and people complained oh. just based on the based on the poster and the title, not even the contents of the film. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's it's about a struggling New York artist who goes insane and kills homeless people with a power drill. Jesus, I wouldn't describe <laughs> it as a particularly sophisticated film. You don't say. You can actually watch it in all on YouTube. I don't know if that's legal, but there are several uploads of it, so go nuts, I guess. Yeah. This may, may sound rich of me, because my recordings here sound like I'm recording in a cupboard from the <laughs> 70s, but it has a very strange sound design. Okay. Um, <laughs> by which I mean, I think they were just very low budget. But yeah, uh, enough ragging on a very low budget film. <laughs> it, it, it was released like completely without any fuss in the US. <laughs> but it, it was in the UK, people were complaining. And very shortly afterwards, uh, Go Video, who were distributed the already controversial uh, Cannibal Holocaust, which you may have oh, heard of. Oh yeah, I've heard of that. Yep, very famous film. They decided they wanted some of that sweet, sweet controversial publicity. <laughs> and they wrote a fake complaint about their own film to... Uh, yeah, I know, right? To a woman named Mary Whitehouse of the National Viewers and Listeners Associations. Now, have you heard of Mary Whitehouse? It rings a bell. Hmm. She's a fairly infamous figure in British television history. She was known for her clean-up TV campaign. She campaigned against social liberalism and sort of the corruption of morals that television was causing. Okay. I can't really go in too deep on her at the moment. She, again, there's a lot to read about her. Like, again, there's books about her. There was a biopic, actually, on uh, a TV biopic with um, Julie Walters playing her called Filth, which was pretty good. Oh, okay. I will say I don't agree with her on, like, a molecular level <laughs> about anything. Fair. But there are a couple of things about her that I... Because, you know, she was homo- She was very homophobic. Very homophobic. Yeah, even I mean, she she thought that like the permissible stuff going on at the time, which was still not a lot, was too much and it was obscene oh, and it was filthy. Yeah, but yeah, two things about her I think it's important to remember. 
Uh, number one, uh, a sizable amount of the criticism leveled at her was misogynistic in nature. Oh, of course. As is often the case, because it's like, why are you making like misogynistic cracks at this person when she has so many terrible, terrible things yeah. that you should be criticizing her for? Yeah. That's. I mean, my 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 mum was saying that because she says she remembers it being like. Uh, clean up TV in Mary Whitehouse and she just remembers thinking a lot of the coverage was very misogynistic. Yeah, it's like the coverage of Theresa May. It was like, the problem isn't that she's a woman. Well, yes, exactly. Another person who I'm like, Sh- yeah. go away forever. And two, to be frank, much as a broken clock is right twice a day, I think she was right about the way women mm. were portrayed in sort of 70s comedies like Benny Hill and that. Yeah. I think she had but a point But it was just there. lost in the mire of everything else. Yeah, basically. She also opposed Jimmy Savile, so, you know. <laughs> Good. Twice a day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she criticised Doctor Who, Robin of Sherwood, which was a popular show at the time. Oh, uh, in, 19, in 1965, she wrote to complain about Panorama showing footage of Bergen-Belsen, the concentration camp at its yeah. liberation, calling it filth. What? Which is... Uh, that's the thing, because it's like, you're correct in that this imagery is shocking and it should offend our sensibilities as humans. Mm. However, yeah. like calling it filth seems incredibly ignorant and disrespectful. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Yeah. And like like putting it under the same umbrella as something like the driller killer. Yeah, or cannibal holocaust. Exactly. You know what I mean? It's um ugh. anyway, she's dead now, so who cares? But yeah, she also criticised footage of the Vietnam War being shown as she felt it was an ally of pacifism, sapping the will of a nation to safeguard its own freedom, let alone resist the forces of evil abroad. Yeah, so basically she was like, people see how nasty war is, then maybe they'll think war may be not good after all. Yeah, how about that? How about that indeed? (laughs) (laughs) With this, she, she sparked off a public campaign sort of against these sorts of films, and she actually coined the term video nasty. Okay. Yes, and this snowballed into a newspaper campaign against the video nasty, Mm -hmm. with the Sunday Times and the Daily Mail leading the charge. Oh, what a team-up. What a team-up, what a twist. Here we have sort of all the usual concern about the impact of all this on crime rate, especially among the youth. David Meller, who was the Minister of State at the Home Office, said in 1983... No one has the right to be upset at a brutal sex crime or a sadistic attack on a child or mindless thuggery on a pensioner if he is not prepared to drive sadistic videos out of our high streets. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. So this has this kind of Ouroboros effect of making people interested in video nasties because they were like, yeah. they're horrible, you say. Well, I better go and find one. <laughs> and um, yeah, and as of 1983, they now had a convenient list of these films. <laughs> Yeah. Because a, a list of video nasties was made, a sort of an official one, which you, you can read the whole thing on uh, Wikipedia. They fucked their own selves. They really did. You fucked it up. You fucked up a perfectly good campaign is what you did. Look at it. <laughs> it leads people. <laughs> but yeah, in total, 72 films were featured on the list. The Like the official, the, these, these are the, the video nasties, although there were other films that are adjacent to and mistaken for. But 39 of them were prosecuted. Mm-mm. An interesting thing about this list of titles, actually, is you will notice most of them have several titles. I don't know why. I'm guessing it's to bypass censors, maybe? Maybe. Yeah, or maybe just because they were so low budget they <laughs> couldn't afford the title. <laughs> no, I, uh, and also, uh, like I say, a lot of them weren't 
originally produced in English, so it could be a translation thing as well. Oh, true, yeah. Hmm. The most notable of the films that were, you know, banned, prosecuted, were probably I Spit on Your Grave, which is a quite famous one, The Last House on the Left, Cannibal Holocaust, Andy Warhol's Frankenstein. That's probably for the best. Yeah. Faces of Death, which is quite well known, Tenebrae, and The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, and also The Evil Dead, which I love. And Inferno and Death Trap. And we've we've got um we've got some fairly big horror names in there. We've got Dario Argento and Toby Hooper in there. Yeah. Uh, then there were films that were not prosecuted for obscenity, but could still be seized and confiscated if found. And this list included Friday the Thirteenth One and Two. <gasps> Great films. Great films. Suspiria, oh. and Deep Red, also by Argento. Uh, Dawn of the Dead. And yeah. Night of the Living Dead, oh. The Hills Have Eyes, Ugh. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I love, mm. and also The Thing, which is like my favourite horror movie. Oh. I love The Thing. That's just a list of great horror directors there. Honestly, that's just a that's just a good list for like a Halloween marathon. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, these these last ones weren't actually banned, but they were regarded with suspicion, and some films were. <laughs> like because one of my favourite uh, horror films is Hellraiser, and um, mm. it seems to have not it's a british film as well it seems to have not received like the i i think it just it came kind of too late for the video nasties but a bit yeah. too early for the uh moralism of the 90s which i'll talk about in a minute plus i think it's w- way more explicitly geared towards adults yeah what i'm trying to say is i love hellraiser and uh <laughs> i want to watch it right now <laughs> we need a film night honestly we're just doing these night. films i know yeah, I just I just really want to watch quite a lot of these films now. Yeah. So the de- the deciding body in all this was the BBFC, who were designated in 1985 to be the tastemakers of uh, what was in violation of the 1984 Video Recordings Act, uh, mm-hmm. which was the act that came about largely as a result of Mary Whitehouse's campaigning, you know, and the papers. Yeah. So the the this act, um, which is still very much in operation today, you every time you go and see a film at the cinema, you see the BBFC. FC certificate before it. I'm assuming that's British Broadcasting and Film Company? Council, yeah. Sorry, I should have, should have clarified that. But yeah, so the Act also exempts educational works, you know, ones that have E on them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that's sports, music, religious, educational, yeah, the E's were exempt. Though this can be forfeited if they go overboard on certain things, including yeah. mutilation and torture, genitalia, urination and defecation, or portrayal of techniques likely to be useful in criminal activity. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, things have to be classified by the BBFC for commercial release. Yeah. They can be passed uncut, or they can be passed with cuts, or they can be denied. Details of cuts are available on the BBFC website, and please uh, go to their website and read their case studies, because they've got a list of like films and explaining why they got the certificates that they got, why they were acceptable or unacceptable, and like where cuts were made and why. Oh, is that why you get director's cuts? No. So a, a regular cut of a film would be the theatrical release and the director's uh, cut would just be an extended version. Got you. If cuts are made uh, by someone like the BBFC for uh, a film's release, then you legally can't restore them. Oh, okay. Yeah, a, a good example of this is... They talk about, on their website, some of the cuts they made to some films. One of them is uh, a Serbian film. Oh, which, yeah. Yes, it was passed for release in the UK, but several, I think, a f- quite a few seconds of it were cut out because they were deemed to be, like, depict violence in a manner that's basically too... Well, it's torture porn, that film, isn't it? Yeah, although 
And it, it's an, a thing about that film is there's a lot of criticism of it, but I have seen several commentators just sort of online, nothing official, who mm. are Serbian and they've said the central metaphor of this film is very relevant. So, yeah. like, I'd, I'd love to see, like, an article written about that by a Serbian commentator, to be honest. Mm. But a, a better example of, like, oh, this is just pornography is a Japanese film which was banned it was refused classification in 2009 called Grotesque. Okay. So you you can't watch it in the UK. Like, I don't think you'll be arrested and thrown into jail if you're found with, like, a bootleg <laughs> copy of it. But, you know, it's 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 not approved by the BBFC, so it can't be screened, it can't be sold on DVD. Yeah. And that's deemed because they were like, this is just torture, for the, this is just pornographic, titillating torture. Whereas something like um, Saw, which I'm very fond of the Saw films... <laughs> Which they do have kind of very gratuitous depictions of torture, but you could say it's in service to the overarching plot. Because there's one thing you can't accuse the Saw films of, it's not having enough plot. Some would say (laughs) they have too much plot. Because it it would be borderline impossible to watch Saw 4 without watching the other three first. You would have no goddamn idea what was Mm. going on. (laughs) I mean, honestly, I still hold that Saw 1 is one of the best horror films. I love Saw 1. It's so good. So one's the best film, but I will literally watch any of them at any time. <laughs> I'm very fond of the seventh one because it just gets so stupid. <laughs> Which one had Chester Bennington? That was Saw 7. But yeah, so the term video nasties is pretty much... Like, you, you wouldn't call grotesque uh, a video nasty. Yeah. It seems mostly confined to the 80s. The term kind of dropped off and doesn't really apply to any other films after this period. In the 90s, we saw fresh fear applied to sort of more larger budget movies for their influence. This is where it gets a tiny bit unpleasant, so just heads up. Okay. Violent films were actually cited uh, in several real-life violent events. So uh, in 1987, there was the Hungerford Massacre, Mm. which you may have heard of, which saw 16 victims shot dead and more injured by perpetrator Michael Ryan. The media pointed out and made a fuss of the fact that he'd been obsessed with Rambo First Blood. Most probably in complete error, it is entirely possible he, he hadn't even seen it. Yeah. Yeah. This doesn't seem to have affected the film's UK video release. Other films would be less fortunate. So um, a very a film that was hit very heavily by two violent cases was uh, Child's Play 3, which came out in 1991. Oh, yeah. Yes, it was infamous after two separate instances. Uh, one, very famously, was the James Bulger case which I'm not going to describe in detail here, but for those who don't know, it was um, 1992, I believe. Mm. It was an incident where a two-year-old boy was murdered by two, uh, very brutally by two ten-year-old boys, um, which became something of... Oh, jeez. Yeah, it became something of a media circus at the time. Mm. Uh, But yeah, it was suggested... One of the perpetrators, John Venables, it was suggested that his father had a copy of Chucky Three. And that the murder was supposed to imitate a scene from it where one of Chucky's victims is splashed with blue paint. Right. Now, there was there was another film called uh, Mikey uh, in 1982, which was about um, a child murderer, and it was refused a UK release after the fact and is still prohibited in the UK. Huh. Yeah, but Chucky was the influencer, though. Despite the fact that Venables, he didn't live with his father and he didn't like horror films, so he probably hadn't seen it. Yeah. <laughs> but... You know, we must consider this as other tragedies at the time followed the same lead. Uh, another famous murder case was that of 16-year-old Suzanne Kapper, who was held hostage for seven days by a gang of six in the Greater Manchester area. She was tortured and died after being set on fire. 
Cold fucking hell. This was in 1992, but the media, when reporting her case, um, really plunged into the how and why of it. John Ronson wrote quite a sensible piece about the economic imbalance of Manchester, you know, just being like, you know, it's a place that's very ridden by poverty. Mm. There was also a moral panic over the gang aspect of it. And the fact that two of the gang leaders were female. But again, up popped violent films, with Child's Play 3 mentioned in the testimony and sensational headlines linking it to the Bolger case, calling it the curse of Chucky. Oh, for goodness sake. Yeah, it's in very poor taste. So again, the defendants didn't own a video player. Well, the, the connection in this case was they had um, tortured Kappa by playing really loud music at her including a song called Hi, I'm Chucky, Wanna Play by 150 Volts, which oh, like sampled some dialogue from the movie. And it was quite popular in the charts at the time, so that's probably why they used it. Mm. But apparently they would proceed torturing her by saying Chucky's coming to play. Oh, fucking hell. But that's still a very huge stretch. Yeah. You know, I mean, as a br- broadcaster David Elstein said, there is no reason to believe that Suzanne Kapper would be alive today if the audio tape had indeed contained the torture scene from King Lear. Or a catchphrase from Bruce Forsyth. Yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, I don't want to quote another film here. Go, do it. But it, it, it's it's relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from Scream. Scream's great. Which is, horror, horror movies don't make serial killers, they give serial killers ideas. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's. I mean, that's paraphrased, but it feels apt. I'll get onto that in a second, because I, I think that, I, honestly, that I think that quote's correct. Yeah. But yeah, so Chucky is in the sort of the consciousness now as a causer of violence. Mm, which is great publicity for it, I assume. Well, I mean, Chucky 3's largely been forgotten. Mm. <laughs> you know? Pe- people remember kind of the franchise, but I don't think they remember Chucky 3 specifically. Is that Seed of Chucky? No. No? I don't think... I think I think it's Chucky 1, 2, 3, and then it's Bride of Chucky, and then it's Seed of Chucky. Oh, uh, okay, okay. They're, they're, like, I, re- I remember there were more than I thought there were. Yeah. But enough that releases of other films like uh, Natural Born Killers and Reservoir Dogs were delayed. Oh, okay. Yeah. And again, um, Mikey, the other film, was basically banned. But yeah, the BBFC ruled out any connection between the Kappa case and Child's Play. But, you know, damage had been done. Now, all of this kind of brings us forward to present day. And before we go back to 2009 for kind of our last bit, we're going to, you know, look take a little look at stuff like the internet. So... The idea of video nasties and obscene penny dreadfuls is behind us now. Uh, when mm. I was a kid, we had Goosebumps, and that was yeah. fine. Like, Goosebumps was pretty uncontroversial, right? Because it was for kids. Yeah. Um, even though we were all scared of bits of it. Or, <laughs> what was the other one? Are You Afraid of the Dark? Oh, Are You Afraid of the Dark? I love Are You Afraid of the Dark. I still and watch it on YouTube Doctor sometimes. Doctor Who, at times. Doctor Who? That's a, yeah, Doctor Who scared me when, it, you know, yeah. when I saw it. Are You My Mummy? That was terrifying. That was genuinely terrifying, yeah. But yeah, and and kids nowadays, I would just, I don't know what, I don't know if they're still reading Goosebumps, probably, well, no, really good example is Creepypasta. Oh, yeah. And So, I mean, something like, for example, the Slenderman stabbings, I'd be interested in seeing how that develops, because that is directly linked to something. Yeah. But again, like, millions of people read about Slenderman and didn't stab anyone. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you read into that case, it sounds like the two girls who were the perpetrators were obviously inclined towards that kind of behaviour. Yeah. Um, but, but then there's other stuff. Like, the, a better example of a moral panic is something that happened last year, which was uh, Momo, which was mm. quite big in the UK, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And Momo is based on literally nothing. It's a, yeah. it's a hoax. Nothing happened. There were no suicides. 
nothing i mean it scared people children were scared of it but they were scared of it because the media kept bringing it up like yeah. i'm i'm sure there are loads of people who would have never seen that photo if the media wasn't like look at this bird woman yeah and it's it's like you kind of caused this you know yeah you you you've shit the bed now sleep in it yeah and it's yeah you've dug your grave now lie in it yeah you've opened this can of worms now lie in it You've burned this bridge, now lie in it. Yeah. But yeah, Momo was literally nothing, but Mm. kids were scared of it because it was more widely circulated after the fact. Like, Mm -hmm. adults caused it to go viral, adults who were concerned about it, you know? Yep. But yeah, films are still affected by these acts, these notions. Uh, Again, look at the BBFC's case study site. Their explanation of the human centipede films is very interesting. (laughs) Because <laughs> I think the 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 first so the second film I can't remember if the third one as well but the second film uh was cut a bit uh, had bits cut out in Britain and just Britain uh-huh. because they were deemed by the BBFC to be gratuitous. I mean the whole fucking film series is gratuitous. Human Centipede is very frustrating because the first film's kind of like a B movie that's mostly fun, and then the second and third films come close to making some kind of meaningful commentary but ultimately are not clever enough to actually make that commentary yeah you know what i mean like mm. the the second one it has a guy who's obsessed with the film and he's like i'm gonna make my own human centipede which is actually quite tied in with that theme of what if people copy the things they see in yeah. cinema and like i really wish mm. it had a better writer and director because yeah. i feel like you could you could make something with that Mm, absolutely. Yeah, they just made it's it's it just I mean, um I follow the director on Twitter, I don't know why, but um he's he, he he kind of thinks he's a lot more controversial and like visionary than he is. Mm. Which again is a pity because I feel like more could have been done with it, but whatever. But yeah, so the reason stuff was cut out of that and also films being banned is because they were seen to condone and sexualize violence. Okay. Yes. Risk of harm to the viewer is the theme, and maybe that's a good thing. You know, like we we don't re- we don't need to see something that gross sometimes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Although the the bit in um there is a bit in the Human Centipede two where a woman crushes her newborn baby's head. <gasps> oh which my god. Was left in. Oh okay. <laughs> yes, that 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 was not cut out as far as a, I'm pretty sure it wasn't cut out because I'm pretty sure I saw it on the Netflix version. But yeah. As Springhall notes, the parents of the children killed in the Dunblane massacre um, in Scotland, uh-huh. they felt that the licensing of handguns was more responsible for, you know, the pain they were feeling than natural-born killers or Rambo Two, which were put forward. Yeah, you don't say. Yeah, so handguns were banned. Yeah. Um, <laughs> America. Yeah, I mean, some would say, <laughs> whatever. I'm not going getting into a gun debate, but nope. yes. Ultimately, I think films don't kill people, guns kill people. Yeah. But what good does banning and prosecuting even do? Like, do some things just not have the right to exist? So, one of the most recent trials of the Obscenity Act happened in 2009, Mm -hmm. and that was a British man named Darren Walker, uh, who was tried for posting a fan fiction, which detailed the kidnap, rape, and murder of Girls Aloud. Oh my god. Yes. Okay. It's There's a Wikipedia article for it called R.V. Walker, if you're interested in, you know, reading more about it. But this fanfiction was published on an erotic site and therefore clearly, like, was eroticizing violence mm. and rape. But he walked. Uh, he actually walked on the first day of the case. They dropped it almost immediately because an IT expert was able to prove that 
child fans of the band would not be able to access the work. Only people who were looking for it would be able to access it. And that's the cornerstone of obscenity is like intent. So it was just dropped. Oh, what? But you can still read the story if you want to. It's still online. Um, okay. Do what you want. It's legal. Uh, I think it's pretty funny because pre because it's actually hosted on a really old school like in uh like fan fiction type website which almost got me kind of nostalgic. You know, like oh, a, is it like fanfiction.net? No, it's all uh, which is weird because I mean the case is from two thousand nine, but it looks it, it's not an angel fire site, but it kind of looks like an angel fire site. Oh, it's got that vibe. Yeah, it's got that vibe. Um, but it, it's <laughs> but it's for like erotic stories. And hilariously, I think you can access the fanfiction in one click from the website, from Wikipedia's RV Walker page, which I believe you can get to on one click from Girls Aloud Wikipedia page. So, oh my god, that fanfiction is more accessible than it ever was before it was prosecuted. Yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, you can do what you want. You can read it if you want. That's legal. Yeah, you shouldn't, but you can. I would not be comfortable with knowing that you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I clicked on it and I was like, I wonder if it's one of the, you know, like My Immortal where it's so bad, it's just funny. But <laughs> I just, I gave up after like four paragraphs because I was like, you know, this is just unpleasant. I don't, mm. I don't need this in my life. Yeah, I'm okay without this. I'm okay without this. I will just reread My Immortal if I need that kind of hit. I, I love My Immortal <laughs> so much. So good. But yeah, the kids were safe again, again, except for, you know, the fact that they could immediately click to that fanfiction from, straight from Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you even have to, well, you might have to enter a birthday, I don't remember, but yeah. But yeah, that's pretty much horror, the media, and the children since the age of the printing press. I haven't gone into, like I said, I didn't go into a few things like the 1992 banning of a book called Lord Horror by an author called David Britton, just because it was largely irrelevant, but it's it's worth looking up if, if you're interested in this. And also, like I say, video games, which I haven't really talked about at all. But yeah, Rockstar Games and their kind of struggle against censorship is pretty interesting. Because, mm. you know, Rockstar, they're actually a Scottish company. Their headquarters are quite close to where I'm sitting ah. right now. Yeah, I know someone who did testing on Red Dead Redemption 2. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it is cool. But yeah, um, I think what I really want people to think about is, like, do you think that this attitude avoids confronting realities as pointed out by kate summerscale and in the and in, in an old article uh for the guardian about the james bulger case a lot of the perpetrators of violent crime are dealing with a lot of other problems um and for children you know child criminals whatever those problems tend to be poverty neglect and abuse yeah and you know going back to harmsworth and his and his penny delightfuls for a second <laughs> He's presenting a commercial solution here, you know, mm. basically saying that this prob- this is caused by this very clear problem, but we can solve it by you purchasing these products. Yeah, a very clear solution. You know, and and like there are other like uh, Ted Kaczynski, the, who the Unabomber, um, for example, mm. allegedly based himself allegedly, but I don't know how true that is, but it's you know whatever. It's probably more solid than the Chucky 3 thing. He allegedly based himself on the professor in Joseph Conrad's book, The Secret Agent, but no okay. one has suggested we ban that. Yeah. Presumably because it's it's real literature. And, you know, there are other cases like quite famous murderer Leonard Lake who worked with Charles Ng to commit his murders. Mm. Uh, that's another American one. Uh, he was inspired by a book called, I believe, The Collector, um, which he uh, wrote about yeah. a lot. Yes, but again, I don't... Yeah, I don't believe that book was... 
No, because it's proper literature. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't I don't believe it was faced with the same kind of con- controversy as all these other no. ones. And yet, why would one reader in thousands, millions of readers do this? Mm. One viewer in millions of readers do this? Surely, like if it's going to incite violence, surely it would do it in more than one reader. Surely you'd have like a a, a rage plague or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Everyone who read the Adventures of Varney the Vampire went out and. <laughs> Just started sharpening their teeth. Yeah, and engaged in Renfield syndrome. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, it's absolutely wrong to say the media doesn't influence people's mm. opinions, behaviours, because it does. Yeah. But I would say sort of j- genre tropes less so. So, for example, a feminist critique of media, the, the media portrayal of women, centres on the fact that negative depictions are present across all forms of media, right? Mm. Whereas when we're when we're criticizing violence making people violent, we're talking about tropes that are specific to certain genres. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get what you mean. That's just a thought I had on the bus today. It's a good thought. Well, I was trying not to focus on the fact that the guy behind me has sneezed on my hair. Oh no! <laughs> it's that time of year again, mm-hmm. folks. But yeah, complaining about gore in a piece of horror fiction. Eh, eh. Yeah, it's like it's gonna it's gonna be there. Yeah. It's sometimes yes, it can be excessive. There are films where it is excessive. Things like The Hills Have Eyes or the remake of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre or American Horror Story. Yeah. And and you, and you can you can cross the streams here. You can say women are portrayed in horror fiction in a way that oh, yeah. is overly sexualized and that is a uh-huh. that that would be a legit argument, I think. But yeah. and you know, maybe you could say the the reason women tend to be viewed this way is because they are portrayed in a similar way in other genres of film. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, it's just mm-hmm. it's just that is crossed with these particular tropes of, of, of yeah. the genre. Yeah, like they're, they're more likely to be put in situations which are exactly. dangerous or, or violent. Yes, plus, you know, sexualized violence, which is a big thing. Yeah. But yeah, you, I, you can do a, a feminist reading of pretty much every media oh yeah because i mean that's the kind of the idea behind feminist theory is that you know sexism patriarchy influences everything ditto with if you were doing like yeah. if you were doing like a marxist reading you would say um, yeah yeah the um exploitation of the lower classes is what affects everything yeah but that's not that's more that's more of an argument than people behave x way because these things happen in this type of fiction mm. yeah <laughs> i'm like i'm uh, i'm like maybe i need to like make this argument more concise but it's what i was is what it's what was on my mind <laughs> i'm following it yeah i got you but yeah that's pretty much it for um... i've really enjoyed this oh that's good i'm glad to hear it because it's not a subject i i really knew a whole lot about so i mean i didn't know loads about it but mm. i i just seen i'd seen a few documentaries about video nasties and i just thought they were fascinating because yeah just the idea of things being like that regulated especially mm. because again a lot of the bannings weren't based on the content of the films they were based on the posters yeah and the titles they literally judged a book by its cover they really did and which subsequently <laughs> must have been kind of disappointing when people sat down to watch some of these films because a lot of them have just long stretches of talking yeah and then and then a few killings with red paint. All I was thinking about when I watched The Driller Killer was, this just seems like a really inefficient way of killing someone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, there are easier ways, my man. Yeah, I'm just yeah, it's the same with 
a lot of these, I mean, something like Cannibal Holocaust is still infamous for mm. their, because, I mean, some people say it was the proto-Blair Witch, and yeah. I, I, I think the animal cruelty might be the main reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's worth, if you're a horror fan, it's definitely worth visiting the video nasties, mm. and I recommend reading more about Mary Whitehouse, reading the, the book that um, I've been using, which is available on archive.org. Cool. If you don't have an account, then you should get an account for that. Um, as well as checking out the stuff in the British Library about it, about uh, Penny Dreadfuls. Which I'm going to do. Good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> but yeah, we. the moral is we live in a society. Yeah. We're, unfortunately, there are people. And, <laughs> and what are people going to do? Look at violence. Crime. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Look at violence. No, look at violence and then go do a crime. Yep. Because that's what makes violent crime do be exist. <laughs> um, it's fun though. We've come the most kind of modern that we're that we're going to currently. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah. And our next episode is going to be <gasps> yes the furthest back in history we've we've been, which is very exciting. Yes, it, that's going to be good. Should I give it away? I think you can give it away. You can give away yeah. teaser. Going to be looking at. I'm just going to say it. We're going to be looking at uh, bog bodies and the kind of history to do with them and looking into potentially why they, why they exist the way that they do. Are they human sacrifices? Are they Mm. honored burials? Or was it just convenient? That's what we're going to be covering next episode. Yeah. I don't know loads about bog, because I've seen the ones in the British Museum. Mm. In high school, I had to do the Seamus Heaney poems about bog bodies. Yeah, which I recommend reading. Oh, yeah. As a sort of a, a, a little compliment to the to the topic. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm looking forward to learning more about bog bodies. Yay! They are probably in my top three kinds of mummy. I'm glad to hear it. I want to know what the other two are. Uh, I'm going to say Egyptian and... Oh, I forget where they're from. I believe they are Inuit. Mm. But there was a kind of mummy that was made by... Essentially skinning the corpse and then putting the skin over um, some kind of preservative frame. Oh, cool. Yeah. I Yeah, that rings a bell. But those are man-made, also sort of natural mummies, which is what bog bodies yeah. are, actually. Um, are very interesting. But on that note... We will see you next, next time. Yes, we will. Good night. Good night. Podcast Network.